Yes, Abner, you can go downstairs. You will notice that there's no insert other than the cantata insert. And the reason for that is I thought it would be good to speak on one of the passages sung this morning. There in front of you in the King James, you have uh, the passage I just want to look at, talk about, think about for the few minutes we have this morning. And that is Malachi 3, or if you're Italian, Malachi. Okay, tough crowd. Malachi chapter 3. You're welcome to follow along in a Bible if you have one. As it turns out, it's actually the text that I was given to sing this morning. Malachi chapter 3. And just want to look at an unexpected Savior this morning. An unexpected Savior. Let's just read those two verses. Behold, I will send my messenger. And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord God, we pray now as we look at this portion of your word that you would open our eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would soften our hearts, and that we would see what you have for us, Lord. In this season of the year when we celebrate the birth of your Son, Lord, I pray that we would understand it rightly and what it means to us and for us, and that we would respond in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, these two verses contain a promise... And a warning. Promise and a warning. The promise is there in verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger. and He will prepare the way for me. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. There's promise. He's coming. There's a messenger coming. He's going to prepare the way. And then this servant is coming. The temple, says the Lord of hosts. And yet there's an unexpected contrast. I want to focus on what's unexpected here. Because we've already seen that they, del- they delight in him. They're seeking him. You'd think they'd be excited for his coming. They are. And then verse 2 asks a question. It's rhetorical. Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. So there's a promise in verse 1. There's a a messenger coming, someone who's preparing the way. And then the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in, whom you're seeking. He's coming. He's coming to the temple. He's coming soon, declares the Lord of hosts. And then I can sort of paraphrase the last verse, but are you really ready for him? Are you prepared for him? And, and the obvious assumed answer is, no, you're not. No, you're not. There's a great irony, and, there, and there's something sorrowful here, that Israel, this, this is a message given to Israel, Israel, at least initially, who is looking for their Messiah, who is excitedly searching the Scriptures for their Messiah, when he came, crucified him. They were not ready. They were not prepared. 
Great irony. They're seeking him. They delight in the covenant he brings. They're not ready for him. So I want to ask why. Why why weren't they? And if we can understand why they weren't ready for him, that could help us answer the real question I have this morning. Are we ready for him? Are we prepared for him? Do we understand him rightly? So I just want to look at four, four unexpected realities about this Messiah. Four surprising and unexpected realities about the Messiah. But to understand where this is coming from, you've got to understand that Malachi is not only the last book of what we call our Old Testament, but it actually is, chronologically, the last word of the last scripture-writing Old Testament prophet. Now, Jesus tells us that John the Baptist is actually the last Old Testament prophet, but the last prophet who writes scripture is Malachi. He comes in, and we're studying. If you, if you come here regularly, you know that we're studying. We've been studying the book of Zechariah. And, and a brief overview of Israel's history is that God calls Abram, and he makes a covenant promise with him. He renames him to Abraham, and he builds a nation out of him. And out of his great-grandsons great become the 12 tribes. And they go down to Egypt, and he leads them out of Egypt through a deliverer in Moses, and they come out a, a nation, a people group, and they go to Mount Sinai, and they enter into a covenant with God, and, and God takes them to a land that he has promised them, overflowing with milk and honey, and he settled there. They live in houses they didn't build. They, they eat from grapevines they didn't plant. The Lord has lavishly provided for them, and yet in their wealth and in their affluence, they grow arrogant, they grow lazy, and ultimately, they grow unfaithful. They worship other gods. And so God warns them, and he sends them prophets. And they, at times, return to him. But by and large, Israel's history, if you read through First and Second Kings, is one of covenant faithlessness. And so finally, God sends discipline, as he promised he would. As early as Deuteronomy, he promised he would do this. And he takes them off of the land. First, the ten northern tribes, Shalmaneser, and then the southern two tribes of, of Judah and Benjamin under Nebuchadnezzar. And they're taken to Babylon. And, and it looks as though the stories come to an end. The Messiah hasn't yet arrived. There's no Davidic king. There's no land. There is no temple. It's all destroyed. And God does something amazing after 70 years. He brings them back. And he, he leads them to rebuild the temple. And he, he reaffirms his promises to the Davidic heir. And even here, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And so this is to a people who've returned, and they're, they're working on this temple, and, and they're, they're trying to be faithful. And here comes this word. He's coming, he's coming. Are you ready? Are you ready? So... What, what is so unexpected? Why did they stumble so badly? Why is it that in the first chapter of John, we can read these terrible words? He, speaking of Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And you think, okay, John, the world didn't know him, but surely, surely his people did. Surely the Jews did. Verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That's the sad testimony. There were exceptions. There's a remnant chosen by grace. But by and large, Israel cried out with one voice, crucify, crucify, crucify him. How can you make that big of a mistake? 
And you either have to conclude those people were really wicked and, or really stupid or both, or there's something that they did that we might be in danger of doing too. So I want to look through, first, the Messiah's unexpected identity, his unexpected identity. You, you see it here in the, in the Malachi passage. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way for me. And we know who this messenger is. It's John the, the Baptist, as he is called, sent to prepare the way for the Lord. And the Gospels all begin with his ministry. But how does he prepare the way? A royal messenger would go out and make sure the roads were straight. He'd make sure they were clear of bandits. He'd, he'd make sure that there weren't, to use our vernacular, any potholes. How does John the Baptist prepare the way for the Lord? How does he prepare God's people for the living Christ? His one-note message, repent. John the Baptist prepares Israel for the presence of the Messiah by calling them to repentance. It's interesting. Are you prepared for the Messiah? We'll move on. His identity. So we've got the, the messenger. He will prepare the way for me. And so you've got to ask this question, who's coming? Is, is, the, is the servant coming or is the Lord coming? Because is, is, God says he's going to prepare the way for me. It sounds like God talking. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And so one of the things that was unexpected that the Jews stumbled over is that Jesus is God. Now for many of you, this is, this is no new teaching. And yet for many in the world, they want to tip their hat at a, a wise, moral teacher, a good man. And precisely the point that trips the Jews of Jesus' day up, trips many up today, he is God. It's even here you know, in this passage, he will prepare the way for me, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now the word Lord there is Adonai, a title at times given to God. And so the servant, this, this, this messenger who's coming is divine. He is God. The Jews definitely stumbled over that. As early as John 5, when Jesus began to make it clear who he understood himself to be, when he says, I and the Father are one, the Jews said, that's it, that's blasphemy, kill him. That was, that was what upset the Jews. The Jews were not upset by Jesus' moral teachings. After the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, no one was trying to kill him. It was rather his claims to divinity that offended. Because, of course, if he is divine, if he is God, then he demands full, total, uncompromising obedience and allegiance. And, and he made statements like that. He, he, he acted upon those claims. He'd say things like, whoever doesn't pick up his cross, deny himself and follow me, is not worthy to be my disciple. So not only did he claim to be divinity, but he, he took upon himself the, the, the rights, the privileges of deity. That, that was unexpected to the Jews. They stumbled over it. They also stumbled over his humility. The, the Jews were looking for a very powerful Messiah to come, and what they were looking for was geopolitical salvation. Ever since Nebuchadnezzar had enslaved and taken captive the southern tribes, Israel had lost its political autonomy. Even as it returned to the land, it returned to the land with only a regent or a governor, not a king, Zerubbabel, and, and, and doing homage and ultimately under the, the political control of whoever was ruling them that year. First Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then the Assyrians, then the Romans. 
And so in Jesus' day, it's the Romans. They, they, they never had political autonomy after the captivity. And so the, the Jews of Jesus' day were reading their Bibles, and, and they were looking for a Messiah. They absolutely were. You go to John chapter 1, and the Jews send a delegation to John the Baptist, and they want to know, are you, are you the Messiah? They're looking for him. This text is right. They, they really are seeking him eagerly, which is what makes it so terrible. These people aren't indifferent. But they are in error. And Jesus comes, not as a conquering king, not with an army, but humbly, riding on a donkey. You know, at one point, they wanted to make him king. In John chapter 6, after he fed the 5,000, they want to make him king. But Jesus removes himself from them. Because he knows what they're looking for is, is earthly salvation. They're looking for the next free meal. They're looking for someone who will come and do away with the Romans. Their concerns, their sights are too low. They're too low. I want a Savior who can put food in my belly. I want a Savior who can give me freedom now. I want, I want a Savior who can establish a government that I like. That's what I'm looking for in a Savior, the Jews of Jesus' day said, and they stumbled over his divinity, and they stumbled over his humility. He didn't come in pomp. Where was he born? Born in a manger. They stumbled over his identity. Next, there's an unexpected covenant. text here references that as well. I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way for me. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Now, covenant is, is, is another way of speaking of an unbreakable promise or oath. Covenants can be unilateral. One person can just make promises. And covenants can be bilateral, which is sort of closer akin to our modern-day contracts, where two parties each make mutually assured promises together. And, and these are called covenants. And God has made a number of covenants with different people over time. Of course, the one that the Jews' mind most, most centered was the Mosaic Covenant. Remember I said Israel, when they left Egypt, they went to Mount Sinai, and they entered into a covenant relationship with God. And that covenant was bilateral, meaning there were things Israel was promising to do, there were things the Lord was promising to do. If you read the book of Deuteronomy, it's a summary of or a restatement of that covenant relationship. And in that covenant relationship, there's sort of a tit for tat. There's if you will be faithful and if you'll follow my precepts and if you'll observe my Sabbaths and if you'll, if you'll honor the law, then, God says, you'll have economic prosperity, political superiority, you will have many sons and daughters. You'll have a land that gives you its produce. You'll have peace on all sides. You'll have prestige among the nations. And these are all the things the Jews of Jesus' day were looking for. That's what they were hungry for. That's what they wanted. The problem is that that wasn't the covenant that Jesus came primarily to fulfill. Jesus wasn't coming primarily to bring in the Mosaic Covenant. Oh, he does fulfill the Mosaic Covenant because he keeps it perfectly. But there's an older covenant, a much older covenant, as old as Genesis 12, where God speaks to Abram. The Lord said to Abram in Genesis 12, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
God here, in a unilateral covenant, where only God is making promises, promises Abram three things. He promises him a blessing, he promises him descendants or a seed, and he promises him land. And what is later known as the Abrahamic covenant is actually the covenant Jesus came to fulfill. You can read the book of Galatians, where in, in, in chapter 3, Paul makes this point extensively. The older covenant is more foundational. The promise where God's salvation comes through is the seed of the woman, first given in Genesis 3, then to Abram through his seed, through his descendants, narrowed even further through the covenant God made with David. And so Jesus is coming to fulfill what is the New Testament calls the new covenant, but is really the fulfillment of the old, old covenant to Abram. And so the Jews of Jesus' day, again, were measuring themselves by this sort of nerfed version of the Mosaic Law, because if you read the Mosaic Law, there's, there's no way on earth you can keep it. There's just not even a chance. If, if the point of the Mosaic Law was to call people to perfect obedience, then it's pointless. You cannot do that. That, in fact, is kind of the point of the law, the Apostle Paul argues. The law of Moses was meant to show us our need of Christ. It was a schoolmaster to drive us to Christ. No one at the end of the day, upon reading Deuteronomy, was supposed to say, yeah, I, th- I think I can do that. I think I, yeah, I, th- I think I can do that. You know, just pinch a good work. And so then you've got two options. If you, if you have a law that you can't keep, you can either turn to the Lord with a broken spirit and contrite heart and say, God, I can't do this. I'm going to fail. I need help. God loves it when people do that. Psalm 51 says, the sacrifices of God, the sacrifices he's really after, are not bulls and goats. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Now, that's the right way to respond. And then that was what faithful Israelites would do. And then by faith, they would endeavor to follow the Mosaic Law, knowing they could never do it perfectly, knowing they needed forgiveness, knowing that by attempting to observe the Law of Moses, they were not building up for themselves a pile of righteousness, some credit. There's another way to respond to the law of Moses. You could just tweak it till it becomes doable. You know, just sort of sand down some of the rougher edges. And that is what the Pharisees of Jesus' day had done. They'd taken the high, high demands of the law of Moses and they'd sort of nerfed it, sanded it down to something they could keep. And so then they became convinced that they were, in fact, keeping it. They were self-righteous. And so consequently, when they, their Messiah came, not only were they expecting a mighty military Messiah, but they were expecting a Messiah who was going to pat them on the back, who was going to say, good job, guys. Thanks for holding the fort. I'll take it from here. Romans, go home. And that, that was what they were expecting because they were clinging to the law of Moses, his covenant, wrongly understood, the law of Moses is wonderful, rightly understood. And they'd missed sight of, or not given proper priority to, God's covenant to Abram. A covenant where, two chapters later, how does that covenant work? Is there a lot of laws to be kept? Genesis 15, 6, Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. See how simple that is? God speaks to Abram, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. God talks. Abram listens. He believes the Lord. And God says, you're right with me. You are 
innocent of sin. I, I forgive you. You're good. So an unexpected identity, an unexpected covenant. Third, there is an unexpected cleansing. Unexpected cleansing. We see that in verse 2. As the, the tone now shifts, who can endure, back in Malachi, the day of his coming? And of course, the assumed answer is no one, not many people. And then he goes on to say why. Why, why can we not endure when he comes? Why can we not stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. For he is like a red, hot, burning flame that will devour every impurity and purify. And he is like fuller's soap that you put on with a heavy horsehair brush and you scrub until the stain and the dirt is removed. Again, not exactly what the Jews of Jesus' day were expecting. And by not exactly, I mean not at all. They, they, were, they were looking for a pat on the back. After, after the return from Babylon, Israel was monotheistic. Prior to Babylon, they worshipped other gods, but the, the, the captivity to Babylon seemed to cure them at least of that. And then there arose a sect of the religious right called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were all about enacting and observing and keeping the Mosaic Law. Now, their sort of version of the Mosaic Law, they tended to favor those aspects of the Mosaic Law that could be observed, that could be visibly seen. So they made a big show of doing their hair just right and having their, their little box on their forehead called a phylactery. And the bigger it was, the more holy you were. And they, they made sure that everyone would see them wash their hands. Now, Jesus would rebuke them for not internalizing it. He would compare them to, to a beautiful... Um, wall, but inside of this, of this box are dead men's bones, like a cup that's gone through the dishwasher, and it's sparkly on the outside, and you look inside, and there's moldy, leftover you know, yogurt from last week. That, that's what they were like. And so they're expecting, pat on the back, they're expecting job well done. The religious right of Jesus' day, they're very moral people, they're very religious people. And the reason why I'm emphasizing this point is because very moral, very religious people were the people who received Jesus' greatest anger, greatest rebukes, and tirades. Very moral, very religious people. The Olivet Discourse, where Jesus blasts them with woe after woe after woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Very, very culturally conservative, moral people. So if they could, that can happen to them, I want to make sure that doesn't happen to us. It says here in, in Malachi, he's going to suddenly come to his temple. Jesus made a number of appearances to the temple. I believe he, he went at least three times a year all of his humbled life prior to the, the cross to the temple, as, as Deuteronomy 16 dictates. He, he was first brought there for circumcision on the eighth day. We, we read one account in Luke of, of a 12-year-old Jesus at the temple during those regular journeys to the temple for the feasts. But if you want to look at an unexpected trip to the temple, you need look no further than, say, John chapter 2. Jesus shows up to the temple, this temple that Zerubbabel oversaw the building of, that Herod had added to, and he does not say, job well done. He does not come in and, and say, I love what you've done with the place. You know what he did, don't you? 
when he suddenly came to his temple like a refiner's fire. And they weren't ready for him in John chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went to the temple. And in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. That's not very nice. It's righteous. It is right. It's not very nice. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he those who sold the pigeons. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Yeah, they weren't ready for him when he came. See, what they stumbled over is that the cleansing Jesus was concerned about was not the cleansing of the Romans from the land, but rather the cleansing of sin from his people. This is precisely the issue that they tripped over the strongest. They tripped over his identity as God and as a humble Messiah. They tripped over the covenant. He wasn't making a big deal of the Mosaic law. In fact, he taught his disciples that they could just sort of you know, grab grain and you know, thresh it in their hands while they were walking along. They didn't do the cleansings. They didn't do the hand pourings. What's up with that? It wasn't the covenant he was primarily focused on. The cleansing that they were looking for was not the cleansing he was concerned about. If you have a Bible, just turn a few chapters over to John 8. You'll see this clear as day. And again, I'm highlighting all of this, and I'm sure to many of you this is, this is things you know, because it, people who are in a better position of privilege than us missed this horribly. Missed this horribly. These are people, the Pharisees are people who'd memorized, on a whole, memorized the Old Testament. And then... As far as we can tell from extra-biblical literature, a body of rabbinic literature about twice as long. These are people who knew their Bibles. In John 8, you get this, what starts to look good. Verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. And I say, good, this is looking good. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word... You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They don't, they don't, there's something in that they don't like. They hear him say that, free. What are, you, what are you implying, Jesus? So they say to him, verse 33, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone except Egypt and the Philistines for a lot of time and Assyria and Babylon, and Persia, and the Romans. But aside from that, we've never been slaves to anyone. Not us. Nuh-uh. We've never been slaves to anyone. How can you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, it doesn't get any clearer than that what type of freedom, what type of cleansing Jesus is dealing with. He's dealing with inward cleansing from sin. He's promising them. He's got good news for you guys. Good news. If you abide in my word, you're my disciples, you're free. And they say, oh, we don't, we're not interested in, in that type of freedom. We're not really, I don't know if, what are, you, what are you offering me cleansing for? Are you telling me I'm dirty? 
And this gets, this, this gets bad. It gets worse. Because they don't like that at all. Verse 39. Um, don't just even jump down further. As this gets worse and worse, we could read the whole thing. Because in verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Understand, the same group who back up in verse 30 and 31 are said to believe in him are trying to kill him. As he starts talking about sin and about his deity. It was unexpected. And frankly, from their point of view, it was unacceptable. This Jesus would claim to be God. That he would claim that these Jews, these righteous people, needed forgiveness, needed freedom. And they would kill him for it. Cleansing, Jesus offers another cleansing. He calls his own people, he calls the the Jews to repentance, he calls them to deal with their sin, he calls us to deal with our sin. And for those who do, he's also like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap, in that on the cross, Jesus deals with sin. He cleanses sin. Jesus removes sin. He's like that soap that washes it away. So, So Jesus, unexpected in that he's dealing with sin, he's calling people to repentance, he's, he's lighting them up, he's, he's intolerant of the self-righteous, very tolerant of the brokenhearted and contrite, very intolerant of the self-assured, proud, and self-righteous. He cleanses in that way. And for those who will receive him and for those who will believe in him and for those who will deal with their sin honestly with him, he cleanses on the cross, paying for our sins, dying, rising again on the third day. And a few weeks ago, the last message of Zechariah, Pastor Daniel pointed out, and of course he was right because the Bible was saying this, Jesus is coming again unexpectedly for a final cleansing of the earth. He'll gather his sheep, and he will separate between the sheep and the goats, and there will be a final judgment. There will be a final cleansing. See, as we go through these points, as we get to finally an unexpected gospel, and now is where I want to wrap the question around to us. The Jews of Jesus' day missed the boat, by and large. They killed him, and unless at some later point they came to repentance and faith, they perished. And even at this moment, they are perishing. And yet for us, we can think, well, we wouldn't do what they did, but be careful. We're, you're here on church on Sunday morning. You are some type of religious person. Not all religion's bad. James says true and undefiled religion is a good thing. And, and I'm guessing we're moral people. But again, remember, so are the Pharisees. So I just want to walk through those points. The unexpected identity. A Jesus who is God is a Jesus who can demand things of you. It's always been popular to de-God Jesus, to make him a wise moral teacher, a good coach, an inspiration. Inspirations don't tell you to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow him. Inspirations don't demand absolute obedience and loyalty. God does. Inspirations, not so much. Is he God? Is he your God? Is he my God? Will we stumble over his claims to divinity? Or will we simply look at a little baby in a manger and say, that's so sweet. I love this time of year. Or will we bow down and worship 
Will we build our lives on the foundation of this Christ? Second, the covenant. The Jews were looking to a a covenant they could work at. They could do their bit turning the crank and out would come credit. And by and large, the overwhelming majority of the religions on this planet do the same thing. You boil them all down, there is some set of scales where there are things you need to do, probably some combination of moral living and some form of sacramental religious liturgy or, or a procedure you're to go through. Maybe it's baptism. Maybe, maybe you've got to go to church. Maybe you've got to be consecrated. Maybe you've got to take the Eucharist. What, whatever you want to plug in. So it's good works and some form of ritual will offset in the scales my sin, my wrongdoing, my errors and mistakes, as you like to call them. And if you boil it down, that is what virtually every religion on the planet says. Because at the end of the day, people do not believe God is as righteous as he is. At the end of the day, they're hoping, they're trusting, they're counting on the fact, and people are lying to them, telling them that, if you just try hard, give it your best shot, you'll be okay with God. Now, first off, none of us do that. None of us gave it our best shot. But that doesn't work. This is exactly the mistake of the Jews. If you're wondering, what was the mistake of the Jews of Jesus' day? Paul tells us. Listen carefully to what Paul writes in Romans 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Speaking of the Jews. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. It wasn't a lack of passion. It wasn't a lack of enthusiasm. Zeal. They were zealous. Their worship services, their hands raised, they were singing loudly. They, they were excited and passionate. They had a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. Which, by the way, that right there, doesn't. well intentions don't count. It's not good enough. Well intentions, believing a lie, is damning. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. What Paul's saying is this. They had no idea how high God's standard was, They'd lived for so long with this dumbed-down, lowered standard that they thought they could meet, that they had completely lost sight of, lost track of, and ultimately became ignorant of where the real standard was God's righteousness. Understand, God is so holy, God is so righteous, he cannot tolerate any sin. Any sin. So therefore, if you want to stand in front of God, if you want to live with God in heaven, you need more than your good deeds to outweigh your bad deeds. You need perfection. You need sinlessness. You need holiness. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. Because we're all hardwired to want to earn it. We're all hardwired to want to work for it. We're all hardwired to want to believe, I can do something. You can't. You can't. You can't work hard enough. You can't pray long enough if it's vain repetitions of prayers. You can't do enough good works, take communion frequently enough, can't even read your Bible enough to be acceptable to God. You can't. You absolutely cannot. What God wants from us is faith. He wants us to deal with our sin, to be honest about it, not to to hide it and pretend we're more righteous. He knows. He wants us to confess Believe. He wants us to, 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 to 
surrender our rebellion against him. The New Testament term is to repent, to, to turn one's mind inwardly. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to build my life on this anymore. I want Jesus. I'm not going to pursue this anymore. I want Jesus. I'm, I'm trusting in him. I'm entrusting myself to him. This is the unexpected cleansing. If, if we will be honest about your sin and not pretend that you're more righteous than you are, then God will cleanse you inwardly like the fuller soap. Now, if not, if you're going to insist on your own self-righteousness, if you're going to insist that you're okay, then he will still cleanse you. Or rather, he will cleanse the world of you. You, you can be cleansed of your sin, or he can cleanse the world of you, but the final state of affairs in this universe will be one where only the righteous live, where he sets up a kingdom on earth, where, where his saints dwell with him, and where those who, who would not believe, those who would not repent, perish. Sin will be dealt with. There will be peace. There will be a cleansing. The Lord will cleanse you one way or the other. The Jews weren't ready for him. They stumbled. Uh, a small handful understood. A small handful were faithful. So that brings us to, to finally what we make of Christmas, what we make of this, this baby in a manger, what we make of this Savior. Is he God? We believe that. Is he God? Is, is the covenant that he brings? Are you looking for religion that says to you, do these things, perform these rites, undergo these rituals, and you will be acceptable to God? Or do you realize that that is bankrupt and all such promises will fail? And what you really need is, I need a pardon. And I got no grounds for it. I don't deserve one. I don't deserve mercy. Neither do you. I don't deserve forgiveness. Not because of who I am, but because of who you are. Not because of what I've done, but because of what he did on the cross. Lord, would you forgive me? I'm going to trust Jesus. I'm going to build my life on Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus. The cleanse is the, is the salvation you want, first and foremost, a salvation from sin. Lord, I don't want to be me anymore. Would you change me? Would you recreate me? Or are you interested in what God can give you? Your best life now. Are you interested in a God who can, who can get your, your political things in, into place? Oh, Lord, just get proposition whatever to pass. Is that first and foremost what you're after? Are you after a Savior who will save you from yourself, your sin? Now, I'm going I'm to ask Dan Barth to, to come up here in just a moment, and we're going to sing our closing song because God's invitation to you today and every day while you live, that you would trust his Son... His invitation for you today is that you would rightly understand that you would have a zeal. You're here. You have a zeal. You got up on Sunday morning. You have a certain amount of zeal. Would that it would be according to knowledge and truth. That your zeal would be in a right understanding of who Jesus is, what his birth means, a right understanding of the covenant that he brings, the gospel that he offers, and a right understanding of the cleansing and the salvation that he gives if you do understand that, if you do receive that, then, then you will be able to sing with us joy to the world. Dan, would you please come up? Please stand, pull out your yellow sheets as we sing our closing song.